Welcome in to the Wednesday Bible study as we continue. Now we're getting toward the end of, uh, of a series uh, that we started uh, 11 weeks ago. This is uh, the 12th um, um, episode of um, this new study called The Unsaved Christian. I mean, that name alone is very provocative. Unsaved Christian, we certainly know there's no such thing. But what this takes on is cultural Christianity. Uh, it's, it's in a book that's written by a pastor, Dean and Sarah, out of Tallahassee, Florida. When I, you know, these are these are things we've talked about in the Bible study for years. But when I saw this book, I, it put together this concept of cultural Christianity, and and in my opinion, put it together so well. I thought, what a great study for us to unpack. And I will tell you, it, it has garnered uh, more emails than than any study that we've done here. And when I say that, certainly we've garnered garnered emails and people asking questions about some of the books of the Bible that we've gone through. But this seems to have to, 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 to touch the nerve in our country, especially in the South, which we'll talk about today, with people who are looking at the standard that Scripture uh, says, uh, uh, the standard that is to be met by those who claim to be redeemed uh, versus the cultural Christian. And I, I'm, I'm so excited about how many people have uh, been part of this Bible study uh, that have done you know, what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians when he wraps up that letter to assess ourselves and test ourselves to see if we even are of the faith, to see if the evidence of Jesus Christ in our life uh, can actually be found. And there have been a lot of you uh, that have let me know that, uh, that God is dealing with you and uh, you have, uh, you've rectified that false sense of security and you've identified yourself as a cultural Christian, but not anymore. Uh, you have become devout, devout followers of Jesus by uh, repenting of sin, submitting to his authority, uh, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that, uh, that he paid for your sin on the cross uh, that needed to be paid for. Uh, and then, of course, he rose from the dead on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will return for his church. Uh, so there's a great quote, and, and when we start talking about this week, now before we do, a couple of things I want to tell you. Uh, you can still go to themanchurch.com. If we can help you, any of you who may be part of this that are in a church, you're in leadership in your men's ministry, maybe you're a pastor, and, and you, you've assessed the men's ministry game plan at your church and it is lacking, uh, we would love to help you with themanchurch.com. Uh, we have churches, about 40 churches now, that are doing the entire discipleship strategy. Uh, First Baptist Church, Opelika, Alabama. Uh, if you're watching this live or catching it on the week uh, that uh, this was actually recorded, I uh, know that uh, uh, Mark Garnett, dear friend of mine and one of my brothers in Christ and one of our teachers and speakers with themanchurch.com uh, will go to uh, First Baptist Opelika on August the 6th. Uh, he'll be there for Man Church. These are the services you know, where the men get together and, and, and they're challenged. And then, of course, they'll go into the next round of the discipleship strategy when also we give the high challenge like we'll do uh, there on August the 6th. And then they'll roll into the next round of high equipping uh, with our discipleship strategy in our first curriculum, which is called The Pursuit. Uh, so if you are in that area or attend that church and you're catching this, don't, don't forget about that and, and make your plans to attend on August the 6th. Also coming up, the Gridiron Men's Conference in Alabama. Uh, I'll be there along with David Jeremiah, uh, Steve Farrar, uh, Michael W. Smith will be in concert, Charles Billingsley will be there, Ross, I'm sorry, Josh Rivas uh, will also be there. Great teaching pastor and Phil Waldrop, of course. If you want to get your men together to be part of that, August 21 and 22, go to gridironmen.com, and we will have all of our uh, discipleship strategy and our resources uh, available to you that weekend as well.
Let's open in a word of prayer and let's dive in uh, to part 12 of the unsaved Christian. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to, as you, through the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, you know, challenged us to do, and that is to assess where we are in the, in the faith that we claim. Uh, walk us through this today and continue to awaken uh, the cultural Christian out of, out of the slumber and false assurance of a salvation uh, that is counterfeit. I pray, Lord, that you'll walk us through this today. Pray that every single word that you place on my tongue is received by those who hear it and see it in the way you intended. And as you continue to assess me and refine me in the process of making me into the man that only you can. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so we, we get into chapter 12, I mean, chapter 14, but it's part 12. And this is called Faith, Family, and Football, dealing with the Bible Belt. I, I was born in the Bible Belt, raised in the Bible Belt, still live in the Bible Belt, uh, and I live in what a lot of people call the Belt Buckle, and, and that is Alabama. And I will tell you that everything in this chapter I'm extremely familiar with, and sadly, uh, participated in for a large part of my life because the Bible Belt, in the opinion of the author of the book, and in my humble opinion, this is the king. This, this, is, this is classification point A. Uh, the, the, the cultural Christianity thrives and lives and impacts every part of the culture in the Bible Belt. Uh, the, the, this is the quintessential cultural Christian that lives in the Bible Belt. And how do you minister to the Bible Belt? Well, we have a, <clears throat> this is the problem with the Bible Belt here, here uh, a great quote to start this chapter from Matt Smithhurst. And here's what he said. He said, the most common way to reject King Jesus is not with a defiant curse, but a disinterested shrug. Wow, what a great statement. That's cultural Christianity. And you'll find that in the Bible Belt. We don't, we don't just all, you don't find a lot of agnostics, a lot of atheists. Uh, there's no real rejection of Jesus, but there's really no embracing him either. Uh, he's part of the culture. Uh, Christianity is part of the culture. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a, an attitude of, yeah, that's who we are, and somehow we've become this way. We don't reject it, but we don't really embrace it and apply it either, and that's why, why it could be problematic. Uh, I had a very similar experience uh, that Dean and Sarah talks about when he starts this chapter, and that is football. Man, uh, in the South, if you played for a, a football team, and I know that we've run prayer out of most of the government schools, even in Alabama, but, but when I was coming up, uh, every single football team that I was ever part of uh, all said the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, you know, the, the players who a lot of times are asked to lead a, a prayer, and Dean and Sarah talks about he remembers watching a senior pray for the team, and he thought to himself, well, this guy's not even a Christian. Uh, this, this guy lives his life going to all the parties, having sex with women, you know, uh, openly drunk or maybe, uh, you know, smokes dope or whatever the case may be, but yet he's called on to lead the prayer uh, for the team. And he said, being an underclassman, he said, I couldn't really think of one senior on our entire team that I would say was a follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, the few Christians that were on the team were usually made fun of by the guy who's praying right now. And see, that, that's, that's the Bible Belt uh, in a nutshell. Teams reciting the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and and, and you know, the, the, you, you're taught there's three things uh, that are important in the South. This actually comes from Vince Lombardi, but you saw it a lot in the Bible Belt because Vince Lombardi was held in very high regard. And a lot of players from our state actually played 
you know, for the Green Bay Packers, which made me a fan when I was a child because there was such an Alabama connection uh, to the Green Bay Packers when I was a little boy. Uh, but you remember Vince Lombardi said this, your religion, your family, and whatever your mascot is for your team, those are the three things that are most important. And he said what was so funny, though, he said, I would see this in, in the locker room or somewhere. These are the three most important things, your religion, your family, and this team. Uh, and he said, but I can't remember many coaches that I ever played for that I would call a Christian. They themselves didn't have it in that order. They usually had uh, the, the team, their family, and then maybe their religion somewhere at a distant third. Uh, but in, in the Bible Belt, which, which is where you know I'm, I'm very familiar because this is my culture, religion and faith are traditions. Uh, it, it's everywhere you look. And we'll get deeper with this point throughout this chapter. He, he talks about something later in this chapter, which I think we really need to lean in on uh, today, especially if you're someone that's listening to this or watching this that, that is from the Bible Belt. Prayer was a football tradition, uh, but he said, I can't recall even a fraction of the team that were truly Christians. Uh, but no one protested the prayers. No one asked to be removed uh, from uh, the area while we were praying. No one complained about separation of church or state. Uh, and, and then he says, and, and the reason why that happened, if you don't understand the Bible Belt, this may seem odd to you, but the reason that no one really practiced their faith, but yet no one had a problem with the acknowledgement of this faith, is that being Christian, uh, it really, uh, you, you can practice Christian traditions in the Bible Belt without it ever being attached to actual Christian beliefs. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a, it's an understanding basically of Christianity. Nobody really has a problem with it. I remember when I was in a government school in the 80s, I can't recall one person that ever did not claim to be a Christian or certainly no one who had a problem with it, but I can only think of maybe two people that I ever knew that lived a life different than the rest of us. I, I remember we had a guy on our team, and he's the only Christian that I really could vouch for at the time and I don't know where you are, Joe Ferguson, but uh, you know I know we've lost touch. And if you're still alive and you hear this uh, uh, podcast or see it, I want you to know that I watched you. Uh, I claim to be the same thing you were, but I wasn't anything like you. Uh, you actually lived out your faith. But it's the only football player that I ever recall playing high school football with that I would say lived out his faith. Now, I don't remember anybody on the team that didn't claim to be a Christian, but he was the only one that acted like one. And I can remember vividly, uh, we had a, a guy come in and speak to our team, some big FCA movement or whatever, and, and he came in to speak to our team, and he was trying to challenge us that we need to, you know, he, he played NFL football or whatever, and he said, after practice today, I'm going to have my stuff set up over here, and I want to talk to you all about us getting into Bible study, and I, I want to talk to you guys about being men of God. And we sat, and we listened, and we didn't have any problem with what he was saying, but when I got in my car and drove away and looked down at the field that we had practiced where the refreshments were set up and the pamphlets were set up. And here was a man who played in the NFL that wanted to try to disciple some football players. There was only one person standing down there with him, Joe Ferguson, the only one. The rest of us left. And probably 90% of the team would go to church the following Sunday uh, because it was part of the traditions. But when it came to trying to do something other than the tradition, like actually dive into the Word of God, we didn't want any part of it. Uh, but every one of us would claim to be a Christian. 
And this is the thing that you have to understand about the Bible Belt. The Bible Belt's a different animal. There's more churches than gas stations. I mean, you go through the Bible Belt and you ride around. You know what you see all the time? Church after church after church after church. You know what else you see? Bible verses on billboards. You, you, you'll drive down a highway in the Bible Belt, and you know what? You'll see a sign, Jesus saves, just right there on the highway. You'll see, uh, you know, give your life to Jesus, call this number. Uh, you'll, you'll see, you'll see if, if those who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and, and, and repent, I'll heal their land. You'll see that somewhere. Uh, I, I've got, there's a sign I pass every time I go down to our little farm. And you know what it says? It says, uh, uh, get to church or go to hell. Uh, and it's got a picture of Satan on it, you know, that, that, that Satan's going to get me if I don't get myself into church. So everywhere you go in the Bible Belt, there's all these Christian traditions, and you are told so many times about Jesus and about the, about the salvation and about Bible verses that it almost looks no different than anything else you see. It does not stand out. It's everywhere. But identifying as a Christian in the, in the Bible Belt is just a way of life. You just don't find that many people that will tell you, I don't believe any of that. I think that's a bunch of fairy tales. Uh, it happens probably more now than it than it did when I was younger, but still not much. It's still alive and well. So the Bible Belt is the home of cultural Christianity. But as Pastor Dean and Sarah says, it is an incredible mission field. But the workers just don't seem to realize it. You know that that's kind of been the thing that's jumped out at me during this study, and I hope it is at pastor for pastors dealing with cultural Christianity but mainly in the Bible Belt, it's almost like we don't want to go there. It's like the churches in the Bible Belt allow this to go on and never challenge it. Uh, and, and, and that's the problem. This is a huge mission field, but you, it's almost like we don't have the stomach for actually going there because of this morbid fear, I guess, of being told that we're being self-righteous or judgmental. But, but that's uh, presenting the truth and confronting someone with, with their claim of, of uh, being a follower of Jesus is what saved my life. I mean, what, what if that pastor had decided it was too uncomfortable for him? I was, I was a quintessential cultural Christian living my life out in front of him, and thank the Lord there was a pastor that said, I just can't let this continue to go on. i got to present you with the actual standard of someone who's been redeemed. This is a unique cultural Christian, Christianity in the South. It is not like anywhere else in the country. You know, we've talked about different kinds of cultural Christianity. Let me tell you something. The Bible Belt is the home of cultural Christianity, but it's a cultural Christianity that is unlike any culture in our country or around the world. And, uh, and, and, and I'll tell you why. In, in, in the book, he talks about this uh, on page 170. And this is that concept in, in the Bible Belt that, that you, it, it's close, but it's wrong. It's, it's close to the genuine gospel, but not quite. It's not quite there. And so that's the reason why it's so easy to kind of stay there in this, in this, in this delusion is that you're so close to it, you almost think you're there. And that's what makes the Bible Belt so difficult. Listen to this. He said, in most cases, uh, there isn't glaring heretical theology. It's like the heresy, it's not glaring like you see in a lot of places. It's, it's subtle. Just like Satan likes to work. It's just subtle. You know, we're almost there. We said something's not quite right, but no one ever challenges it. The people know Bible stories. The people know Bible verses. 
People attend church. They can say the Lord's Prayer from memory and take pride in identifying as a Christian. It sounds really close to the real thing because it is an all-consuming part of our lives. It's who we are, man. Part part of being in the Bible Belt is to be Christian, uh, just like it would be when people say, you know, uh, in the state I live in, uh, from the minute you're born, you got to pick Auburn or Alabama, you know, because football is such a part of our traditions. Well, it's almost like when you live in the Bible Belt, you pick Jesus or Satan pretty quick, and 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 you got to declare it, but you may not know it. You know, like I said, I'm reading the the late J.I. Packard. Uh, who just passed away on July 17th, this powerful man of God. And, and, he's, and I'm, I'm now, for the first time, diving into his book that a lot of people said it impacted their lives. I'm slow about these things. I'm just now getting to it. Because when I saw everybody talking about it, and I, I, I'm reading, and, and Sherry just read his book on holiness, but I've never read his most famous book, Knowing God. And what he does is he has the audacity to take on which, which, which the Bible Belt struggles with and all cultural Christians struggle with. He said, you can know about God and still not know God. Mm, somebody say amen to that. You can know about God and still not know God. And, uh, and so that's kind of what we're talking about because it sounds really close to the real thing. Uh, this, this makes things very complicated and also very urgent for mission uh, as the differences between close and wrong have eternal catastrophic consequences. You know, just because you're close, if it's still wrong, it's still unredeemed. It's still damnation. You know, the the Bible doesn't say the gospel requires you to get close to repentance. No, it says you must repent. It doesn't say that you got to get close to holiness. No, you, you, that, that, it says in First Peter that we are called after we've been redeemed to now be sanctified by Jesus to the point that we become holy in all of our conduct. Uh, you, you don't come close because then you refuse to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, when, when it's just close, obedience doesn't mean anything to you because that spirit has not really been made alive. So that, that moment of the power, the seed of God that we hear about in 1 John chapter 3, it never enters the spirit, so that spirit never comes alive. And now the flesh has just made up some version of, you know, I ran into this uh, yesterday talking to someone that I love dearly. And we were talking about different things. And finally, he said, you know, this, this person right here doesn't believe everything correctly. They believe it mostly correct, correctly, but they're really good people, and they, I really like them. And I just can't imagine that God would reject these good people just because they got this one thing out of line with what he requires. But my response is, well, this Bible's not about good people going to heaven. That's not what this is about. It's not about good old boys going to heaven. It's about the redeemed are going to heaven. The redeemed. Because none of us are ever good enough compared to a holy God. We've got a holy God that's requiring full full righteousness that can only be accomplished in total submission to Jesus Christ. And then he says, once you submit to me, once you've been redeemed, you know, then, then you get to know me. When you get to know me, you love me. When you love me, you obey me. And you begin to love what I love and you begin to hate what I hate. It doesn't say anything about that good old people just go to heaven. That's not what the Bible's about. Redeemed people go to heaven. This reality can be summed up in the remorseful words of the creator of the Christian children's entertainment sensation, VeggieTales. How about, how about he said he blew it? And I, my kids love VeggieTales. 
when they were little. But he said, I spent, I, I realized I'd spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. I really didn't teach them the gospel. It's certainly easy to confuse morality with the gospel, but this is a mistake that the church can no longer afford to overlook. Uh, who would have thought that Veggie Tales wasn't teaching Christianity? Well, the founder, apparently, who realized the disconnect between moralism, which is depicted through Bible stories, and actually believing the gospel and following Christ. He said, I, I realized I was just telling them how to behave well. I really wasn't teaching them the gospel. And see, that's where cultural Christianity really, really will take root if you're not real careful about close but not correct. Close but still wrong. And the reason why I lived in that world is because I was able to get close because I just went around with head knowledge of what I'd been taught, but I had no concept of Scripture. I had no prayer life to speak of other than, uh, you know, when I had food or I got scared. I didn't know the, 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 the gospel because I'd never pursued getting to know it because you know what I thought? I got it. I've been raised in this. I know these traditions. I know the concepts of Christianity. Yeah, but that's not how you get redeemed. You can know about God and still not know God. So then comes the part of the book that I actually found to really, really speak to me because this is a concept. I, you know, you ever try to put something in words and you just can't quite do it and then somebody else does, you're like, that was it. I thank Dean and Sarah for that. Christ haunted South. See, he says this, and I think this is so good. He says, one thing that the Bible Belt knows is that God can't be ignored. And the Bible Belt knows it. So what happens is we're out there knowing that we're not quite right with him. We're haunted by Christ, but we don't quite know him. He said, I've learned this haunting makes appearances at infant baptisms, funerals, and when the family makes a circle in the kitchen and they hold hands as Grandpa leads the prayer before Thanksgiving dinner, the name of Christ lingers, appearing from time to time at family functions, milestones, and traditions. We have the cohabitating engaged couple with no church affiliation, but yet they ask a pastor to perform their ceremony rather than a notary. And then they have uncle, uh, an uncle get up and read some Bible verses during the wedding. There is some unrelenting, nagging pull that can't seem to leave them. The existence of God and that, that it means something for their lives. Perhaps there is an awareness of the need for redemption and even a, even a longing deep down for repentance. It's like the Southerner in the Bible Belt. Jesus is everywhere and we're haunted by it. We know that something's wrong, but too many times we won't fix it. But we know it. Well, why, why would a couple that's been living together, uh, you know, in, in fornication and finally get engaged, why would they want a pastor to do their wedding when they've never even been to church, don't even have a church? That was me. I did that. I did that. You know why? The haunting. I knew that there was a draw to that church. I knew that, that, that marriage, even though I had already blasphemed it, to God was a big deal. And you didn't just go off and get married at the courthouse. I knew that because I was a Bible Belt cultural Christian. But yet, I, had not, I wasn't even affiliated with any church. But I was still trying to have a church wedding. That's that haunting 
that Southerners in the Bible Belt, and maybe you, even if you're not a Southerner, maybe you understand it. And he goes on to say, there's turmoil, not an outright rejection of the Bible in the name of secularism. And I remember that. I didn't. I never became an agnostic. I never became an atheist. I didn't go totally secular and say I think all this is garbage. I just. I. Ju- it was out there. It was around me. It was near me. But I just didn't want to submit to it. I didn't want to commit to it because you know why? I knew. I knew enough that it was going to cost me my sin. And I didn't know Jesus well enough to love Him more than sin. So I was trying to find some awkward walk where I could live in sin, still have my sin, but still have Jesus too because he's part of my tradition. I haven't rejected you, Jesus. I just haven't accepted you either. I haven't submitted to you, but I believe in you, and I I know you exist, and the fact that you exist, and I believe that means I need to deal with the situation between you and me, but you know what? Not today. Just not today. Man, I've talked to my wife before. She said, I can remember like almost having God just pressing down on me before she became a follower of Christ. She said, it would make me so uncomfortable. I remember asking him to leave me alone. See, we know. We're not like the agnostic. We're not like the person who's been raised in a secular world our whole lives, and this God thing is silly to us. We're haunted by it. But that doesn't mean we're saved. And that's the point. That's the turmoil. Uh, There's a lifelong wrestling with the story of God, sin, and redemption. The land of churches on every corner is historically confusing. It's a very confusing place. It's also the land with a haunted past of slavery and Jim Crow laws. The lingering effects still serve as painful reminders every Sunday when you find a lot of churches that seem as segregated in the Bible Belt today as they would have been in the 50s. He said, and he said this, I always thought about this. So he goes, what went through the minds of pastors who were segregationists? How, how did they wrestle that out in their mind? I, I, I believe in, with Dean and Sarah, I think they probably laid awake at night wrestling with the haunting of Jesus. How does a pastor get in the pulpit and see the Jim Crow laws and the segregation that was going on and the mistreatment of, of, of African Americans in the South and to actually get in the pulpit and try to justify it. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It can happen in the Bible Belt. And it doesn't have to be that. It can be anything. It can happen in any place you find cultural Christianity because cultural Christianity isn't Christianity at all. So you can come up with all kinds of versions of things, including the mistreatment of people because of the color of their skin, and somehow think that God's okay with it. Even though Scripture would tell you clearly that, that, that all throughout Scripture, this whole ethnicity thing and the church, it says all ethnicities become one race of people, and, and this is talked about in, in Colossians. It's talked about in different parts of the Bible where Paul says now we're not going to be Greeks or Jews. We're not going to be Scythians. We're not going to be barbarians. We're not going to be free. We're not going to be slave. And you're going to come in here, and, and, and we're all going to be one. This is one race of people under the authority of Christ. Do these pastors not know these scriptures? But yet they were still acting like that certain ethnicities didn't belong with others. But the Bible said otherwise. So the pastors don't know the Bible? Now, see, in the Bible Belt and cultural Christianity, these things are allowed to happen because they're close, but they're not real. They're close, but they're not the real thing. 
You justify things when you just kind of want to be close. So in the South, Billy Graham is revered. Apologies are made to a pastor when you cuss in front of him. And there are certain people that you don't want to see you drinking beer. That's, uh, that's, that's the Bible Belt. Uh, image matters. And I love this line. Man, it, if you could underline this two times if you're making notes today. In the Bible Belt, the home of cultural Christianity, being seen as a Christian can be more important than actually being a Christian. Now, that's good. I mean, that, you could just say that's the whole chapter. Uh, in, in the Bible Belt, being seen as a Christian can be more important than actually being a Christian. But let me tell you what all of us down here in the South know. God can't be ignored. Southerners know it. By the idea of God interfering with their lives, but the idea of God interfering with their lives and things changing if they follow Jesus is too much to handle. So the haunting remains. It is a way of life that must be comprehended in order to be reached. I agree with that. I've, I've told you the story before of me in the Bible Belt doing a men's event, and I saw a, a guy who was just like me, just like me, and we had a time of response, and he didn't respond, and he was outside, and he was a professional fisherman, and as I was walking by, and he said, uh, man, I should have come forward. And so I went over and talked to him, and I had two of my sons with me, and, and um, I told them to stand there and wait on me, and I walked over and took him away from the crowd. And I said, you know, coming forward is not how you get saved. That's just an opportunity for you to deal with God. You know, words don't save you and all that. If you want to repent of your sin and submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, you can do that right now. And he just kept looking at me, and then he started looking down at his shoes. But see, I know about Bible Belt cultural Christianity because I've lived in it. I owned it. I was that. And I said, oh, I understand. I said, you're not quite sure that you want to give your life to Jesus. I said, do you believe in Jesus? He said, yeah. I said, but you don't want to give your life to Jesus because you know what it's going to cost you. And he looked at me and he said, man, some of the best days of my life happen all the time. I like drinking beer. I like chasing women. I'm not unhappy with that. I said, okay, well, let's take that on. And I said, um, have you ever had a woman that you thought might be pregnant that isn't your wife? He said, yeah, I have. I said, have you ever drank so much and been out so late that you missed the time your boat was supposed to leave for the tournament and it cost you money? He said, yep. I said, you ever been so drunk at the wheel with maybe another woman that you picked up and you know if the police pull up behind you and pull you over, you're going to jail? He said, yeah. I said, you ever woke up in the bed, don't know how you got there, and you're thankful and hopeful you didn't kill anybody? He said, yeah. I said, and that's the better life? You see how silly it sounds, what we're, what we're so concerned about giving up? And I said, you're not sure that repenting of your sin, turning 180 to Jesus, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that he's your Lord and submitting to his authority, you're not sure that's a better life. 
That's your problem because you know what Jesus is going to ask for. Your sin. And you still love sin. And you're not sure you can love Jesus more than sin. I said, but you're not going to know that till you actually reach out to him and get to know him. I said, I promise you he's better than sin. So he, he, he cried and, and we prayed and I certainly don't know the sincerity of his heart and I've never seen him again. So I don't know what happened in that man's life, but I understood his haunting. I understood his dilemma perfectly. So then he takes on this next deal that is really bizarre. And that is, you can see the haunting of Jesus in country music. I mean, some of the lyrics that we sing right along with, by the way, are, are blasphemy. And it, it's this bizarre deal in country music where the haunting continues. The lyrics seem to suggest that, that we want enough of Christ to be identified with him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced by him. You see this in country music all the time. It, it, it shocks me, even though I know I live this way, but I would hate to have, you know, I go back sometimes and, and know there's moments on the show that have been, you know, recorded before, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wish they wouldn't play that anymore. I was such an idiot then, you know, still a cultural Christian or, or so young, new to the faith that I was an idiot. But, man, when these songs are out there and they're recorded, and I guess what he talks about, it's bizarre that these artists would do this kind of lyric exchange but what may be even stranger is how many of us go to church, go to their concerts, and then sing them with them as if it's no big deal. The lyrics seem to want to be identified with Christ, but not enough to seriously be inconvenienced by him. Some feature drinking, premarital sex, but they will include in a song about drunkenness and premarital sex, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, awkwardly, it's like a shout out to Jesus. I mean, it, it, it's a bizarre thing about country music. And it says you go to concerts and women from the church in their mid-40s will be there with a cowboy hat on, a short skirt that doesn't leave a lot to the imagination, with a beer held high, singing about drinking and cheating, followed by a song about heaven. The haunting. It's just mixed in in places where it shouldn't belong. Uh, you do understand that, that, that God... Probably throughout Scripture, when you look at Scripture, he really has more stomach for people who say, I don't pretend to know you. Now, look, they're going to die and go to hell if they're not redeemed, but at least they're consistent. And, and maybe they're ignorant. Maybe they don't know. But when you look at Matthew 11 and you see him going through the three cities where he did the majority of his miracles, which would be the Bible Belt in modern times, and you know what he's saying? Y'all saw everything. Y'all had the best shot at me. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes on in Matthew 11 to Capernaum, and he says this to Bethsaida. He says it to Chorazin. He said, if the, if the, what the three of you know, if Sodom had seen it, if Tyre had seen it, if, if Sidon had seen it, all these three places were wiped out by God for their evilness, they would have repented and ashes and dust. But you didn't. And I find them more tolerable than you, and how much worse will it be for you on the day of judgment than for them? You know what that says? It says that there's a streetwalker in Las Vegas right now that has never heard about Jesus. And she's in Las Vegas, and, and, and she's selling her body. She may be doing drugs. But she doesn't profess to know Jesus. And you know what 
Jesus is saying to those of us in the Bible Belt, or those of you at the concert with the beer held high, and the songs about drinking and cheating and whatever else, and then giving a shout-out to Jesus or, or singing about heaven right in the middle of it, you know what he says? I can tolerate her more than you. Because if she knew what you, you knew, she would have repented. She would have repented in ashes and dust, and you've taken me for granted. And now you're mixing me in with all this sin and all this world as if I am nothing but a part of the culture. And I find you more nauseating than I do her. That's what Scripture says. But it's a bizarre thing to see. I remember that time when I found out that women in Sunday school were passing around 50 shades of gray. What? Calling it things like mommy porn. At Sunday school? At Bible school? At church? See, that tells you that church is nothing but part of your culture. If you can walk in there with no fear and start spouting off about 50 shades of gray and how y'all should get a book club and read it, then you have no fear of God. And it's certainly just part of your culture. The Southern dilemma is I believe in Jesus, but truly surrendering him would interfere with my life. And, and, and he says, you know, so, so what, what he tells us is, he says, but if you want to be smart about working in this culture and trying to reach these people for, for Christ, it's, it's the way that I was reached for Christ. He says, don't be so frustrated with it. Just use it. Walk into someone and use what they know about Jesus against them. That's what Rick, that's what Rick Cagle did to me. He used what I already knew against me. He, 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 he challenged me to justify what I claim to believe compared to the life I lived. That was much easier than trying to come to someone that doesn't know anything. Imagine if you got to sit down and go, now you may not know this, but here's what happened. God, no, he didn't have to do that to me. You know what he said? Why can't you live out what you claim you believe? Use it against them. That's what saved my life. Use the haunting to preach. You know, use it to preach to the couple that comes to church just for their kids. You know, it, it's almost like they drop their kids off. They know their kids are to be there. That's that haunting. Yeah, hey, my kids need to be in church. But the real attitude is we're having fun down here, God. So please don't interfere with us. We love going to the lake. We love all these things. And these things can be fine as long as they don't replace you know, it's one thing to say I want to go to the lake for the weekend and not go to church as opposed to I'm going to go to the lake and I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to entertain myself with things that blaspheme the Lord and I'm going to be doing things that are sinful. What you're really saying is, and I lived it. I know this attitude. I know it. I lived it. So, so, so you're, not going, you're not going to play games with me because I know it. You know what we say? Surely there's a line somewhere where I can get close and believe enough about Jesus that I won't go to hell if I die, but I want that relationship to also leave it wide open for me to do whatever I want to do, things that make me happy. So you can't be fulfilled by Jesus? Look, I lived it. I know how ridiculous that sounds now, but I certainly understand it. Country singer Zach Brown in his song, No Hurry, sings about being imperfect and not being in a hurry to get to heaven. He acknowledges that there'll be hell to pay for his lifestyle when he stands before the angels, but it doesn't seem to matter much for him in the foreseeable future. 
Brown will play this song in front of a sold-out arena on a Saturday night full of people who will try to make it to the later service at their church the next morning if they're not too hungover. Singing about a place called heaven is so insignificant to the writer, he has no longing to actually be there. I remember as a cultural Christian the first time I heard, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. Wow. That's someone who certainly has no concept of heaven and no concept of the joy of being in the presence of the one and only living God. But you know what that song says loud and clear? I'm a southerner, and I think this is heaven on earth. Blasphemy. But in Zach Brown's song, like a, a lot of country songs, one's actions don't really matter too much because, after all, uh, heaven knows you're not perfect. In the meantime, raise a little cane and get to heaven eventually. Notice, though, the haunting that creeps into the thought process of the song. Zach Brown, who, you know, we, 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 they got their start on our show, knows that he will stand before his maker one day. He seems to be aware of it in the song. In the song, there's some sort of hell that he believes he has to pay. And, and the people singing about this will sing about this along with him at his concert. He knows something is coming in some sense and that he's going to be held accountable. There is no redemption offered, just some sort of criteria to make it to heaven, which he isn't in a hurry to experience. With that view of God and judgment, Dean and Sarah says, I wouldn't be in a hurry to get there either. We move on. Look at Miranda Lambert. There's an understanding of her relationship with God in the song Heart Like Mine where Miranda Lambert sings that Jesus will make a toast to her when she's coming home. In the chorus, she insists that Jesus would get along very well with her because he understands her heart. With the imagery, it, it, it's, it's certainly fun to imagine the entire psalm goes on into her belief that her choices in lifestyle really won't mean much because she has a good heart. And Jesus apparently agrees with her assessment of herself. The haunting here is that she seems to certainly be aware that Jesus is more than a man. She sings about Jesus healing the blind and being the one whose face we'll see in heaven. In the song, Miranda Lambert is clearly aware of the reality of heaven and Jesus, but not of judgment or the significance of sin. According to her song, her lifestyle doesn't have to conform to Christian ideals because basically Jesus would think she's fun and they would get along just fine. Common in the South is a belief in God without a holy fear of God. It's funny to watch the churches right now in the Bible Belt terrified of COVID-19, but not concerned about fear of God at all. It seems like we're afraid of the things we shouldn't be, but then we don't quite fear what we should. And I've certainly lived that out in my own life. But the problem with that, you know what the Bible says? If you don't fear God, you got zero wisdom. It means you're making it up as you go, and you're wrong. But there's no fear of God in these songs. It's like good old boys and good old girls, they go to heaven. But yet there remains fear in some sense, that inconvenient understanding that God, what God thinks actually does matter, though. So people must rationalize their lifestyle by attaching it to Jesus. So much of Southern flourishing relies on God's thumbs up that many have constructed a God that looks more like the Marlboro Man than a first-century Nazarene. So we know Jesus must be dealt with, and we know we're going to see him. We believe that. So what would we need to do to make ourselves more comfortable with our sinful lifestyle? Change Jesus into something more palatable to us. 
hey, he knows me, and I think he liked me just fine. I mean, after all, I'm a good old girl or a good old boy. Kenny Chesney unknowingly gives a presentation of the Bible Belt Gospel in his song, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven. Chesney sings that the preacher told me last Sunday morning, son, you better start living right. The preacher goes on to imply that if you want to hear your name called at the pearly gates, you need to get your act together. The singer refers to throwing an extra 20 in the offering basket to cover some indiscretions and pleads that he's not quite ready to stand before his maker because nobody wants to go now. What is the dilemma for the, for the Southern Bible Belt cultural Christian? I believe in Jesus, but truly surrendering to him would interfere with my life. So what we find in the Bible Belt is religion without repentance. Good old boys, all good old boys go to heaven. There's no repentance from sin. It may cost me my sin, but repentance is true freedom. And Southerners don't believe that. The Bible Belt Christian is afraid of the word repentance, where we understand that Scripture says repentance is now your step to freedom. The Bible Belt cultural Christian looks around at the, the hell raising and the beer drinking and the women and men chasing and 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 doing whatever they want to do and 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 really their football team and their lifestyle these are the things that we truly worship you know it's in the bible belt where you'll be called to a prayer breakfast where you'll watch a football coach who claims to be a christian and then watch them awkwardly try to make football stories fit into scriptures in the in the bible and certainly i know there are some coaches who are truly followers of christ but not many most of the coaches I've heard speak about an inch deep and a mile wide, and some of their theology is apparently made up at the coach's office. I mean, I know football players and had a discussion about it this week that play for coaches who claim to be Christians, and they don't see them as Christians. They see it as something they wear on their sleeve uh, because it's something that would be beneficial in the Bible Belt. But they don't, they don't see it being lived out in their lives. Because you know what? It's, it's a religion that doesn't require repentance. It doesn't require holiness. It's a family tradition. And see, the haunting that's still there is the disconnect and the difference of believing a person named Jesus and actually being in Christ. We believe in a person named Jesus, but are we really in Christ? Well, let me tell you what Scripture says about that. Scripture says if one is in Christ, guess what they are? A completely new creation. New, not improved, new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 makes this extremely clear. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And you know what that says to me as a good old Southern boy? If I'm not a new creation, then I must not be in Christ. See how we can use that Southern common sense to really be convicted? Paul writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He says, he's talking about the power of God. He just talked about suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he goes into 9, who saved us and calls us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Remember we talked about John 15 and the study of the gospel of John when he says, if you attach yourself to the true vine and abide in me, then I will produce in you fruitfulness. Rick, how, how, do, how, do, I, how do I become holy? In Christ. Listen to what Paul's just telling Timothy. He says, this holy calling that we all clearly can see, and as we've been talking about in the Bible, that are haunted by, it's not going to be able to be done of our own power, and it certainly will be done through our works. But let me tell you what, it'll happen because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, the true vine. If, you're, if, you're, if you sound like this cultural Christian, like I did, I lived this life for good night, I guess from the time that I was old enough to know my left hand from my right till I was 31 years old. I lived this life out, and the reason why is because I was able to not deal with these things, and I couldn't figure out how in the world this haunting was going to happen until I realized, I'll tell you how it happens, in Christ Jesus. He fulfills all righteousness. He, he is holy. He makes us holy. He does it. So if it's not happening, then he isn't in your life. Because it has nothing to do with who you are and who I am, but it has everything to do with the power found in him, not us. So if you're in Christ, Christ himself changes things. If you have your Bible or something with your Bible on, let's go to the book of Romans. Let's look, at, let's look at chapter 8. Many have said this may be the most powerful chapter in the entire Bible. That's debatable, but a lot of people say that. And it is powerful. But here's what Paul says in Romans 8, which I think of all the pep talks I've heard some, some Christian coach give me, nothing compares to this. Chapter 8, nothing compares to it. Verse 37, knowing all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if I truly am in Christ, there's nothing that can separate me from him. So if, if, if you found yourself not in Christ and separated from him, then, then that's probably what's wrong with your life. It was what was wrong with mine. And then maybe it can, become more, it can become more than a tradition. Martin Luther said this following phrase, Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. Christ and I must be so closely attached that he lives in me and I in him. There's John 15 again. I, I abide in you then you abide in me, and then I produce the fruitfulness, and that proves that you're my disciple. How close are you to Christ? Is Christ's power oozing from your life? And if the answer is no, then you're going to be one of those withered branches that's going to show up in front of a holy God not connected to the vine. And you know what Jesus said about the branches that don't connect to the vine? They wither and they dry, and they're good for fire. 
That's it. Sadly, many people in the Bible Belt are haunted by the idea of Christ while not understanding his love for them. The judgment of God lingers in their minds. Believing the gospel would allow them to understand that this is the kindness of God. The kindness of God that can actually lead them to repentance. Listen to the kindness of God in Romans 2, verse 4. The kindness of God. That's the thing we can't miss about the beauty of the gospel. Here's what verse verse 4 says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, we look at repentance like this is God being mean. No, repentance is God being kind. Because, you know, he said, I don't reject the repentant. Well, God loves me right where I am, Rick. He does. Look at the cross, but he won't leave you there. If you stay there and don't submit to his authority and don't repent of your sin and turn 180 from sin and turn completely to him, he is holy and you will be rejected. His kindness is that says repentance is now all you have to do to return and be reconciled to me because of what I did in my son, Jesus. With an awareness of God in our sins, but not the gospel, one is only left with country music theology, hoping God will let us into heaven one day after we have some fun on earth. It is ironic that a faith practice apart from repentance is the one, that person is the one that actually won't experience freedom at all. It is always looking over its shoulder when instead it could be surrendered to God who pursues and saves. The disconnect is real and the door wide open to point people to something better that loves rather than haunts. An understanding of this good news will lead people to finally say, Jesus, here is my life. A haunted house isn't as scary when the lights are turned on. The full true gospel is the light that must be turned on to reverse the curse that is upon the Bible Belt South. Yeah. Man, I I lived it. I know. This is my story. This is me. And sadly, for a lot of you, it's probably you. Stop being haunted by Jesus and your belief and traditions that you know about Jesus. And deep down knowing, as all these country songs say, there is hell to pay. And I know it. And as opposed to living a life that you say, well, I, you know, I, 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 Paul talks about this in Romans 6. He said, we have been freed from sin, but you haven't been freed to sin. You're now used to be an obedient, used to be a, a slave that was obedient to sin now be, be doulos, be a bondservant to obedience that leads to righteousness. Stop being haunted by Jesus and give your life to Jesus. It's a much better experience, and it's where you'll find true freedom. And stop with those car rides when you're alone in the car and you're singing some stupid song, and deep down you're thinking to yourself, this isn't really true. And and those moments when you're laying awake at night, you're looking at the ceiling, you're thinking to yourself, am I really saved? 
when you see the disappointments of the sin that you keep deliberately and perpetually doing while having Bible verses in your house, stop feeling stupid about that. Stop feeling stupid when really what's going to happen to your football team this season involving COVID-19 is more important to you than whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. Stop living in that superficial life that keeps disappointing you, even though it may give you moments of pleasure. We don't live for moments of pleasure that then vaporize. If you want a true life, then right now, right now, Believe in your heart right now. I remember the moment in my life I was in my house. I was by myself, and I didn't know any theology. I knew very few Bible verses. I remembered some that I'd been taught by my grandmother. I remember some I'd been taught at church or that my mom and dad might have had around the house, but I didn't know theology, and you don't have to know deep theology. But here's what I did know. I was tired of just believing in Jesus, and I wanted to belong to Jesus. And I knew that I'd never submitted to his authority. I was still living under my own. And I didn't say some deep theological prayer that somebody wants to post online. You know what I said? Jesus, change me. Just change me. I sincerely want you to change me. I don't know you. I know about you, but I don't know you. I wouldn't sin so freely if I really knew you. And I I look what this sin has done to my life. I'm a wicked man, and right now, as best I know how, I'm going to submit to your authority. I'm going, to, I'm going to repent of my sins, and I just want you to change me. I know that you love me, but I need you to teach me to love you. And I was sincere, and I was broken, and I was wretched, and he did. And it didn't all work out the very first day but it continues to work out this day. He has created in him a life for me that far exceeds anything I've ever known, even on my worst days. Stop with the haunting and find out what it's like to step into the kindness and the love and the grace that God gives us through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together today. I pray, Lord, that all across this, uh, this country and around the world, if this message has been heard or, and seen uh, by somebody today that you specifically drew to this message, I pray that they submit fully to you. May you be glorified. Forgive me of the times that I have rejected you in my life and embarrassed you and blasphemed you. I'm thankful for your grace. And, Lord, help me to live out a life that you will never think that the grace that you afforded me was wasted. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If I can help you in any way, you can reach me, Rick, at rickandbubba.com. Thanks for being with us. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies, or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at burgessministries.com.